0: Hey, I'm Kathy Scott, and this is my husband. Brian. And we have been going to the cross since January of 2011. We came right after Tim did. This is Peyton. She is nine. She's in third grade, and she is all about soccer these days. And this is Ryder. He's two, and he is all about dirt bikes and sports. So these are our two fun kids. (laughs) <laughs> I am on the praise team, and Brian does media, he's up in the nest, so you don't see him yeah, a whole lot. Yeah, people
1: rarely see me, so.
0: Um, and one thing that drew us to the cross was the uh, openness and the um, genuineness of the people. Being an interracial couple, it's hard for us. it was hard for us to find a church that uh, welcomed us with open arms. A lot of people just didn't know what to think about us, and yeah. didn't know what to say to us, and um, so it was really awkward. Yeah, that but was a huge piece. The first day we walked in, everybody was giving out hugs. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome to the crop.
1: Um, I grew up in a stable middle class home, both parents. To this day, I remember throwing football with my dad outside. Um, my mom was the, the strong businesswoman that I learned a lot from. Um, straight A's in high school, never really had to try. It was never really a struggle. That sort of leads me up into summer of 2016. Um, Just a little background. Um, I I work in Atlanta. And to save money, I would ride the bus um, from Conyers into downtown. And one day, I got on the bus, and the air conditioning was mysteriously out, and it was blistering hot on there. And I was like, I can't do this. I got off the bus, and I waited for the next one. I guess it was maybe a week or two later I decided to get on the bus again but this time it was a little different Um, something was just odd I didn't feel like I could stay there Um, the AC was working everything was good but there was just something wrong I couldn't breathe and I said well let me just get off of this one like I did last time and um, maybe I will be alright well the next bus showed up and I couldn't bring myself to get on it. And it's like, what's going on? And uh, I remember saying, well, you're just probably dealing with the fact that you're scared the AC is gonna go out again. So, all right, whatever. But I just could not get on that bus. And I had to call Kathy from Atlanta and say, I need you to come get me. I cannot get on the bus, something's wrong with me. Um, So she did, like a loving wife. Little did I know, that this was the beginning of what would be my first struggle, my first real struggle, um, something that was going to totally change my life and and rock my world. But uh, I think it was January of this year, Kathy was in Kroger and I was sitting outside with the kids and all of a sudden it just hit me and I couldn't breathe. My chest was hurting and I called Kathy and said, Something's wrong. I think I'm having a heart attack. And uh, we rushed through the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, um, Kathy was just talking to me because I wanted to drive. You know, she should have been driving me. But um, I couldn't hear. Her, and I couldn't even speak. That's how dire it was getting. So
0: I kept asking him the same question. And he kept responding, but with no no words, nothing. And finally, he said, I'm okay. And I'm like, but... <laughs> I've been saying, I'm, I'm asking you, but he, could, he couldn't, he couldn't speak. He couldn't do anything.
1: Well, we got in the emergency room. Um, blood pressure was through the roof. Um, they did a lot of tests, EKG, that sort of thing. And they sent me on my way. I said, we can't find anything wrong. Um, this happened maybe two or three more times where I rushed through the emergency room thinking I was having a heart attack. And um, the same thing, nothing's wrong. Stress test, EKG. Um, 24-hour heart monitor couldn't find anything Um, and just so I don't miss anything I want to read um, something I want everyone to imagine experiencing all of these symptoms or feelings at once Um, sudden fear of overwhelming fear Um, accelerated heart rate sweating trembling uh, shortness of breath choking chest pain dizziness Um, Just totally detached from reality. Feel like you're just going to lose control. Um, Thoughts of just dying, Um, tingling in your hands and in in your face. Um, And then imagine not experiencing that for just seconds. Imagine all of that happening to you for minutes and even hours. Um, And what I just described is a panic attack or panic disorder. I didn't know that at the time, but I think the doctors were dropping hints to Mm -hmm. me that you might be dealing with something that really isn't physical, but more mental. And um, that was the case. But I think where I hit rock bottom was I couldn't eat. Um, The stress was just getting to me. Um, All the symptoms of um, anxiety. And I think by this time I hadn't eaten and three days, and um, I don't think I slept a wink in that three days as well. And the doctors had given me uh, a diuretic or a blood pressure pill to get my blood pressure down. Um, And I I think everybody throws out the 120 over 80 as the normal. I think I got up to 160 over 125, which is a crazy um, uh, bottom number. But it was just fear that I'm not gonna be here for my family. And um,
0: and it's hard to see the rock of your family, though cause I am pr- I'm pretty crazy. I'm always running around. I am high energy, and he is the stable one. And it's hard to see the stable one, the, the glue of your family, be so vulnerable. It was so hard. He didn't he didn't leave the room for about a week. A week straight. I mean, he couldn't. He could, physically could I not. I could not leave, leave our bedroom
1: for a week. And the breaking point was two o'clock in the morning, I think this is the third day, I hadn't slept a minute. And I got a text from my mom, and she said, hey. And I looked and I was like, my mom's texting me at two o'clock in the morning. And she said, you okay? And I remember calling her, I just wept. And I said, mom, I just wanna sleep. Hadn't slept in, in days. Um, by this time, I think I was down 12 pounds mm-hmm. in about 12 in about seven days and um, That day I think was the first time I cried out to God and said I can't do this on my own um, and I think we've all heard um, people say and the phrase God will never give you more than you can handle and I, I remember Tim uh, years ago, I think he eloquently put it, that's a lie from hell. <laughs> um, he's definitely going to give you more than you can handle, otherwise we wouldn't need him. And um, that was in my life the first time I cried out to God and said, I need your help. I can't do this by myself. Um, all, all along, I, I felt that I was getting through life on my own account. and. Um, and I just really needed him, and I fell on my, my face, and I just cried, and um, I just I just brought up all those um, symptoms and feelings because I know there's other people that are dealing with that, and um, a lot of times people dismiss you as being crazy. Oh, you're just being dramatic, and it's real. Um, it's 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 something that a lot of people are dealing with, and um, I ask God to just give me help and. What we loved about the OC at first and now the Cross was just the love of all the people there, mm-hmm. and I remember one night, you know, I'm on a media team and um, we're at practice, and uh, Nick and the guys and everybody just prayed around me, and I needed that. And that was
0: the first night you slept.
1: That was the yeah. first night I had slept in days, mm-hmm. and it was it was just awesome. So. Um, I, if anyone's dealing with that, I just think, you know, talk with someone, pray to God about it. I mean, he's the only way you're going to get through it. <laughs> you can't get through it on your own. Um, and there's there's all kind of medicines and stuff out there that they claim will help you. But I, I think he's the only true one that's going to see you through it and, and help you heal.
0: A little bit on uh, my story would be, he and I come from very, very different backgrounds. Um, I was in and out of foster homes when I was little. Uh, I was abused as a child, and um, there would be days I would go without food. My parents' priority just uh, wasn't wasn't me. Um, their drugs and alcohol were a little more important than than me. So um, I grew up in the system, and then when I was 11, I got adopted by my current family, and um, they raised me up in True Southern Baptist Church. You know. Um, kinda of gave me that foundation to go from. I, I rebelled a lot in college. I had I had this void that I was trying to fill. Sex, drugs, alcohol, you name it, I was I was trying to fill it and uh, it just never it never worked. I just I was angry and I was depressed and I just had so much rage and bitterness. I hit my rock bottom and um, I talked to God and he he says to me, you know, I think you you need to move. You need to just uproot, go, get away from the people that you're with. So I do. Um, And then I move to Athens and through mutual friends, I meet this stud. So we start dating and we get married a year and a half later. We have our beautiful family. (laughs) But I truly believe that that God sent Brian to me because, coming from such a different background, he really, he leveled me out, calmed me down a lot, and um, really brought me to reality on, on what life was really about. October 29, 2013, I nailed down my salvation. I surrendered everything to God, um, all of my past choices, my past experiences, I have to set this example for my kids, and I cannot let my past determine how my future is going to be, and I have to rest, and he just kept speaking to me, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, because being a child growing up, going home to home to home, you always wonder, uh, what's next, or who's going who's gonna to dip out on me now, it doesn't matter what else happens, I am not alone, and he has redeemed me and saved me. From all of my previous choices, so you know, when I got adopted, I finally found my, my, my family, my people. I'm beginning to date Brian, who I know uh, my my family wouldn't be too thrilled about. We're from Noonan, and uh, it's just not a common thing down there. Well, um... And-
1: if it's not obvious, we're an interracial couple. So that's what she's talking about.
0: I, My parents want to see a picture of this guy that I've been dating for a while. And I don't ever show them a picture and they want to meet him and they don't ever meet him. I tell them everything about him. He loves golf, he loves to fish. He works in Atlanta. He's got a really good job. You know, I tell them all these things about him. So I I tell them, you know, uh, you, you haven't seen a picture of him and you haven't met him because he's he's black. They were upset. Um, they didn't talk to me for quite some time. Uh, I was I was told, um, don't don't call my house. Don't contact our family. Um, how much can I pay you to change your last name? He just he just wants a trophy. Why this will never last? And you know, um, I kept telling them that I know this is who God wants me to be with because. They had a relationship with God, so I I knew that they understood. And um, they would say, well, you shouldn't be unequally yoked. And my response to them would always be, that is Christian and non-Christian. He is a Christian. He has a love for God. I am not unequally yoked.
1: When she told me of the conversation that she had, um, I was this close. I actually um, got in my car and I rode around and I was this close to saying, I can't do this." And it wasn't because of uh, her parents not accepting me and me feeling a certain way about that. Um, Because I've been through it before. I've I've, um, had interracial relationships before. And she had lost one family growing up. And she had just gotten a new family. I didn't want her to lose another one. So I I contemplated leaving and saying, I just can't do this. But it wasn't because of the whole race thing. I just I just didn't want her to lose another family.
0: For me, my struggle was, you know, here this family is that has taken this vow to um, raise me and love me and here they are saying, We don't want you in our family anymore. So that began a whole nother struggle of Am I enough? I mean what can I what what is it about me that Why do do families just keep going and going? So I struggled with my self-worth and my self-esteem and here comes this anger again. But luckily Brian's family took me in. I spent Christmas with them. That was in October when I told my family and I spent Christmas with his mom. She had all these presents. Thank God she's a shopaholic and just had stuff laying around (laughs) the house. Like she had all these presents for me. Nobody batted an eye. But every day I prayed, just God softened their heart just soften their heart. Let them show them who he really is. And so, um, we get married, and I get pregnant with Peyton a couple months later, and my dad calls. We were looking for a house, he was a realtor, and he said, I I wanna make sure that my grandchild is raised in a house, a good house. And so that just began their, Mm -hmm. their introduction to him, and they, you know, through the years, they've gotten to know Brian, and I mean, and they truly love him. Like God is God has really answered my prayer and just softened their heart. Because their thing is, is you know, we just weren't raised that way. And my argument is you weren't raised that way, but you have a heart. You you know God's heart. Why we're all his people. I don't understand why why you feel it's not okay. And
1: and and my struggle during all of that was why don't people accept um, I'm just like any other person. Um, yeah, many times it's happened to me where um, uh, parents would love me, love all the attributes that I bring to the table, um, supposedly. And as soon as the black thing came up, it was over. Um, so it was it was just a struggle, you know. Um, and I, I try not to take that personal, but. Uh, I guess the only thing I would say is, if anyone has those thoughts, um, I'm sort of a logical person. I, I try to think everything through. Just ask yourself why. You know, um, and I, I think if you thoroughly answer that question to yourself, um, there may be some thoughts in there that you may not sit. That may not sit well with you. When you you sit there and think about it.
0: Thanks for letting us share our story with you. Um, We are so excited to be a part of this family at the cross, and we are so excited to be able to bring our children up in this family at the cross. Uh, You guys mean so much to us.
1: You hear people say it all the time you know, serving, getting involved, getting connected. It was amazing having the people at the church that I could just talk to about the issues that I'm going through. And you wouldn't um, have
0: met them had you not been connected.
1: Exactly. Um, So we really appreciate
2: it. Walk in with me for a few seconds. Michael King was a Baptist minister born in Stockbridge, Georgia. He goes to Israel with a group of evangelicals in the 1930s. While they're touring the Holy Land, they spend about five days in Berlin, Germany. And they start to do a tour of what was happening in the 30s in Germany. He was so moved in studying the Reformation that he came back to Atlanta, takes his five-year-old son down to the courthouse, and changes their names from Michael to Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King Jr. He was so moved by the Reformation that when, Michael, or when Martin Luther would nail the 95 Thesis to the Catholic Church door on Hallow's Eve of 1517, the activist that Martin Luther was, a man who was willing to stand for a cause, he was so moved. He said, I've got to change my name and my son's name. The senior, Michael Sr., was the spokesperson and head of the NAACP here in Atlanta. He was already an activist. But when you see the heartbeat behind why they did what they did, it's amazing. Nomen est omen, Latin phrase, which means your name is your destiny. And he changed he and his son's name to be reformers, to stand in the gap, and to bring about radical reformation to the Church of America and to the people of America. Fast forward to August 1963. 250,000 people gather in Washington, D.C. for the largest civil rights demonstration in American history. By now, a 34-year-old Baptist pastor at Ebenezer, pastoring over in Montgomery, young guy by the name of Martin Luther King Jr., stands and declares that day that the Negroes of America had come to issue a subpoena to the American conscience. He said that we're coming to cash a check at the Bank of Justice, a check that will give us the riches of freedom. His cry that day was, I have a dream that my four children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day, little black boys and little black girls will be able to hold hands with little white boys and little white girls and live together as brothers and sisters. I have a dream was the heart cry of an oppressed When you go back and study it, it is amazing what was happening. The Freedom Riders of the early 1960s, when they would go out, it would be half white and half black. His voice was not just so that blacks would have an opportunity to vote, even though that was a major part of it. His voice was not just so that blacks would be able to eat in public uh, public restaurants and to use public facilities. Martin Luther King Jr.'s heart cry was that oppressed people would have an opportunity. A couple weeks back, I went down to the King Center and spent from 9.30 a.m. till 5 p.m. at the King Center. We toured Ebenezer Baptist Church. I sat there in the pews. They've gone back and cleaned that church up to make it look like it did in the early 1960s. We toured the home of where Martin Luther King Jr. was born. King III and Bernice, the son and the daughter, spoke to our group that day. While sitting in Ebenezer Baptist Church, they played the last five minutes of the last sermon he ever preached in that church. He preached that sermon one month before his assassination. April 4, 1968, Memphis. But they played part of his sermon. And as I sat there, I was so moved, not for what King had done, and not even how he had done it, but why he did it. Martin Luther King Jr., at the core of who he was, was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther King Jr., last sermon, is talking about being great in God's eyes. And even in his own proclamation and declaration, he is crying out that we would love the hurting, that we would feed the poor, that we would extend the gospel of the good news to the oppressed, that we would visit those in prison. His last sermon was all for the glory of God. His last sermon was all about seeing the oppressed have an opportunity. I've been thinking about this race issue ever since I was a little boy. I speak from personal experience. I started school in the mid-60s. Integration was starting to happen. I went to school with blacks and whites. I played ball with blacks and whites. I sat down and ate at the same table with blacks and with whites. We wore the same uniform, used the same bathroom, but a fundamental problem I had with our culture at that day, when the bell rang, we went our separate ways. It's been said that the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning because blacks go to a black church and whites go to a white church. Praise God, the cross Loganville won't be that way. We're an integrated people group. My mom and dad somehow saw beyond the racial tension. My dad, drywall man, eighth grade educated. My dad did construction. A lot of the guys that did construction were just poor white and poor black guys. Dad had a softball team. And half of his team was from a little community outside of Noonan called Blackjack. I'll never forget meeting James and Lindell Spear, Willie Sinkfield, Lorenzo Hill, Harold Reeves. They played on my dad's softball team. And I was five, six years old when this was going on. Those guys were 19, 20, 21-year-old dudes at the time. And by the time I turned 15, they were playing in an all-men's baseball league called the Hank Aaron League that made up Metro Atlanta and South Atlanta. And they came to me one day and said, hey, we need pitching. Would you pitch for our team? And I'm like, I'd love to pitch for your team. Harold Reeves pulled my dad aside. Harold did brickwork. He said, your son is not only going to be the only white boy on our team, he's going to be the only white kid in our league, but Earl, I'll take care of your boy. And he did. That was my marinade. Little league teams growing up was always half white and half black. We'd drink out of the same igloo cooler, out of the same cup, and we sat on the back of the same pickup truck before we had all these seatbelt laws. We'd sit on sheetrock buckets, corner bead, hanging off the back. And my buddy Rod Rutledge and Charles McClendon, Willie Dixon, Jackie Clerk, we were all together. And as a young boy growing up, I identified more with the black oppressed than I did the white affluent person. I did. When we were doing a tour of the King Center in Ebenezer in the home, they're like, now, right across the street from where Dr. King was born is what we call shotgun homes. I said, I, I, I know them. Because my granddaddy lived on the Mill Village. Both of my sets of grandparents lived on what was called the Mill Village. And they lived in shotgun homes, which means you open the front door and open the back door, and you can shoot a shotgun right through it. There was only three or four bedrooms rooms in that house. And my my grandfather would make $20 a week and he lived in this mill village home and they would take $5 a week out of his $20 a week for rent that the mill village owned. He was a slave to the white owner of the mill. I always identified more with the oppressed than I did the affluent because of the way I was brought up. I started thinking that poverty and pain and injustice and oppression is colorblind. Satan wants to carve us up. He wants to eat our lunch. He wants to beat us down. And there are so many people that struggle because of the way maybe you were marinated early on. We've got to ask the question, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about racial tension and racial prejudices? And I can declare with you with all my heart, that the gospel of Jesus is incompatible with racism and racial tension. If you go back and study the early church, there were racist issues. The Jews thought they were superior to the Gentiles and Samaritans. And there was all this tension going on that even these people that had Place their faith in Jesus Christ from a Jewish perspective were looking down on the Gentiles who had placed their faith and they started trying to get the Gentile to become almost Jewish in keeping the rituals before they could follow Christ. Racism and tension has happened for years, but Paul addresses it head on in Romans chapter 10 verse 12 when he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all that call on his name. So Paul addresses it head on. Uh, We've got this racial tension and diversity can be a beautiful thing. It doesn't have to hinder unity. But Paul addresses it saying, there's one Lord, one Lord of all. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul addresses it head on we would do well to meditate and study Psalm 139. Psalm 139 talks about how we're fearfully and wonderfully made and how God has uniquely made each and every one of us, even as far back as we can go in the inmost parts of our being, in our mom's womb. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We can look at people and say, well, 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 based on the scripture and based on who we are, we're all in the same boat. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're loved unconditionally. Your story matters. Sin infected you just like it did me. You're redeemable just like I am. Reality is we would, we would become so wise if we could stop and realize that the fundamental argument of racism is insane. When we see people, we have to come to the conclusion that we're all out of the same mud and out of the same blood. You'll hear me say that red dirt looking at black dirt looking at brown dirt looking at black dirt claiming superiority of dirtness is a stupid logical idea. We're all made out of the same mud. Would you got different colors. We've got the same blood. We're all born into the world, infected. What is the truth? The truth is, no matter what your size, shape, color, ethnic background is, you were born just like the person next to you, lost. You were born lost, and so was I. But just like the person next to you, you're saved the same way. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ unites us. Peter was struggling with this whole concept in Acts 10. God tries to give him this vision with a sheet coming down out of heaven. Listen to what he says. Peter says, uh, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home or associate with you. What Peter was basically saying is... uh, you know, us being Jews, we got all this circumcision and ritual stuff that we've had done. You know that we're kosher over here with our pastrami. It's wrong for us to enter your house and eat ribs. We can't do that. that that's the fundamental argument. You're a Gentile, y'all are, y'all are misfits. But then he pauses and he says, but God has shown me clearly that I should no longer look at anyone as being impure or unclean. God God has shown me, and I see very clearly now, that God shows no favoritism. God shows no partiality. God has made it clear to me that he accepts those who fear him and do what's right in every nation. People have tried to use that argument. Well, God is, he shows favoritism. He says, no, 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 no. My favoritism was revealed on Calvary's tree some 2,000 years ago when I nailed my beloved son to the cross to redeem lost humanity once and for all. He says, I love any that accept me and do what's right. And we live in a culture where a lot of people want to accept him, but they don't want to do what's right. And I think part of Brian and Kathy's narrative, like many of us is, I prayed now Christ to save me, but Brian's like, man, I'm going through this panic attack, this panic disorder, and I've never really leaned in. I appreciated his salvation to keep me out of hell, but I didn't appreciate his sanctification to get his heaven in me. And Kathy talks about surrendering and nailing it down just a few years ago. So racism, listen to me, Racism is a sin issue, not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. We would all be wise to understand that we all struggle with prejudices at times. The word prejudice means to prejudge. And we not only do that at times with the color of a person's skin, but the type of music they listen to. Some of us come out of marinades where it's like, man, the dude's got tats. He must be a hellraiser. Body piercing. If we're not careful, we start to prejudge and make conclusions about someone. And God goes, stop that. Stop that. I've called you to love your neighbor as you do yourself. But we all can fall into prejudices our background our culture our type if we're not careful we start to conclude that we're just a little bit better than the next group of people not better than anybody else origination god made us all contamination sin jacked it all up destination i'm gonna die just like you But provision of salvation, God has extended his loving kindness. Psalm 139, David even cries out and he says this, Search me, O God, try me and see if there be any wickedness within me. And that would be a healthy thing to do. Lord, I ask you to turn on your searchlight, your spotlight, and search my heart. I want you to show me if there's any wicked way inside of me. I want you to show me if I'm living in sin, royally jacking it up, or if I've got condescending, condemning views toward anyone else. Lord, do a work in me. You start to study the Gospels. How did Jesus look at people? He's like, hey, Jew or Greek, I love you. Male or female, I love you. Rich or poor, I love you. We prayed over our kids And my prayer has been from the time Rachel was born 25 years ago that they would marry a godly person. I want Rachel to marry a godly man. I prayed that Benji would marry a godly girl. My boy got engaged Friday night. Give it up for Benji and Gracie in the house. Come on. There. But I didn't pray that they would marry a white person or a black person or a Hispanic. I wanted them to be equally yoked And marry a believer. I want them to marry someone that's going to be godly. And here's my challenge as I wrap up our talk today. We have to be willing to look at this and realize that racial tension is still an issue today. And we've got to be willing to look at it and realize it's been an issue throughout human history. But there has to be something inside of us that concludes that I'm going to be a wall breaker and not a wall maker. And there's so many people that continue to construct walls and make walls. And we will dog people oftentimes based on their color, based on where they grew up, based on their education. I mean, when Brian was sharing, he's like, well, I never struggled in school. I'm like, dude, I hate you. Because I was in the third of the class, it made the upper two-thirds possible, so Brian and I would not have had the same classes together. It had nothing to do with the color of the skin. It had everything to do with our SAT scores looked way different. But we have to conclude, am I going to be a wall-breaker? Or am I going to be a wall-maker? Am I going to be a person that God can use to bridge these uh, gaps that still are happening, whether it's racially or whatever, am I going to intentionally take strides to be used by God to break down these barriers? You've got to ask yourself that question. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us all. While we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. Who did he die for? All. Who were jacked up? All. For the wages of sin is death to all, but all who are willing to cry out and receive the gift of God, we become children of God. We gain eternal life. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, if there is anyone now in Christ, if there's anyone who's willing to repent and receive Christ, they become a new creation. The old is gone, and now behold, all things become new. Who? All.